Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, and today's episode is all about creativity. Admittedly, this is a massive subject to tackle, and it was one of those things that as soon as I started researching it, the more I realized that even if I dedicated my entire life to this subject, I would barely scratch the surface, which is why truthfully we're going to tackle more of the definition of creativity. Uh, This is for a couple of reasons. One, I'm a big believer in that um, etymology can teach us quite a bit about our world, not only the root of language, but how it's changed over time. I just think it's super interesting and I am always geeking out over the origin of words. Um, but also because as I researched the origins of creativity, I found that it's really a very slippery and nebulous and sort of ever-changing idea and it really the takeaway is that it largely reflects the um, driving economic force of the time which is really interesting because if you had asked me about creativity even just a month ago I think my opinion on creativity would have been at least that the definition and the terms around creativity were were somewhat objective Um, but the more I researched the more I realized that it really isn't objective. And actually, if I can share with you guys the fact that I learned recently that drove me to researching this was that the term creativity wasn't added to the English dictionary until 1875, which feels really recent. That is to say that the idea of being creative has been around much longer. But the distinction is that with creativity, it's sort of this idea that there's a certain amount of human ownership in the creative process. And it's that aspect of creativity that's really pretty new and pretty novel. And I'll go into why as I as I go through the history. But I also wanted to make one more sort of plea as to why I think this would be a really good podcast to listen to. And that's because the history around creativity also intersects with something else that I'm really passionate about. So I have this belief that everyone in some capacity and maybe to varying levels is a creative person. And that creativity can look like painting and music and sculpture, but it can also look like forming a community, maybe Excel spreadsheets, coming up with a community garden, anything like that. And it reminds me of this study that I remember reading years ago. The study is from 2007. I'll link it in the show notes. But it was these two groups of house cleaners in a hotel setting. And they, the scientists took one group of hotel cleaners and they told them that when they were cleaning these hotels that they were getting this amount of exercise and they were burning this many calories and they were improving their health by these specific metrics. And with the other group, they didn't give them this information. And they sort of watched them as they cleaned houses and they followed up with them. And then significantly later, they sort of took these health metrics from them. And the interesting thing that came out of this study was that the group that they told that were burning more calories and what they were doing is more healthy, emphasis on, on health, they had lower blood pressure afterwards they had better hip waist ratio and reported feeling overall healthier and again it's important to note that these people weren't in action doing anything different and in the abstract they talk about the placebo effect and all of that stuff but for me it really points to sort of this idea that I have which is 
that when you believe what you're doing is creative, that you sort of look at the world with eyes that are sort of primed to see more creativity. So when you call yourself an artist or you call yourself a creative person, that you're more likely to see things as inspiration and you're more likely to think of what you're doing as a creative practice and I I think it seems like a small minor thing to sort of quibble about whether or not you consider what you're doing creative but I actually believe both from my personal experience and from talking with other artists that this has pretty dramatic effect in your life. And I certainly think that when it comes to my creative journey and my life that I think I'm a good example of this because I don't know that I'm way more creative or anything than anyone else. I'm certainly not the best drawer and drafts person and I don't think I'm exceptionally skilled in any any capacity in that way. But I think what really helped me out is that For some reason or another, I was sort of deemed one of the artsy kids in first grade. Maybe my motor skills developed a few months earlier than my peers. Who really knows? But I was labeled the artsy kid and it kind of just stuck. I think it's a really unfortunate fact that a lot of times our first real exposure to creativity is whether or not you're good at drawing or coloring as a kid, considering how that's such a narrow view of creativity, that drawing is just one tiny aspect to creativity. I think that's a real bummer because I went into all of my art classes and all the projects for the rest of my life thinking, well, I'm a creative person, I'll be able to solve this. And I can't help but think that there's plenty of students who maybe just weren't interested in drawing but were wildly creative who really missed out on a lot of opportunity think about that placebo effect from the maid study if you can go your whole life thinking that you're creative I can't help but think that that doesn't somehow manifest in your life so my goal for this podcast is of course on one hand that you walk away with a little bit more history and understanding about creativity if you're anything like me a history nerd I think you'll enjoy this podcast. It is going to be a brief overview and I'm going to make a small note that this is really covering sort of the western concept around creativity. It's definitely not the only concept around creativity and other cultures sort of interpret creativity way differently and I think it's important to look into that. I'll link a TED talk which really dives into the differences between eastern and western concepts around creativity but again I'm just wanting to to drive home the point that this is just one approach and it's not the best approach or the only approach. In addition to walking away with maybe a little bit of a better understanding of history I also hope you walk away understanding that If you were born into different time periods, exactly who you are, the term creativity may have encompassed you in some periods and not in others, regardless of what you were doing or how you were making um, your creative practice, that creativity is really this slippery, ever-evolving, changing term that really grows and changes to reflect the dominant economic power and that if you want to claim yourself as a creative despite the fact that you may not feel like you perfectly fit our current world and culture's definition of creativity that there's actually an enormous amount of power in that and that I hope you feel inspired to at least really reconsider your relationship with the definition creativity and the title of being an artist. So let's start by nailing down sort of the working definition of creativity and 
right now there seems to be a little bit of consensus around the idea that creativity is taking seemingly disparate ideas and combining them to create something not only new but also useful. There seems to be sort of a current emphasis on both new and useful. Um, previously creativity was more defined as creating something from nothing and the reason why this tended to be kind of an older definition is because the roots of creativity really come from the roots of western definitions around divinity and this brings us back to ancient greece the definition obviously goes way earlier than that but our records and for the sake of this podcast we're just going to start with the ancient greeks and their idea around creativity was that it was really a manifestation from god and that humans role in creativity um, was basically that humans were a vessel for this divine knowledge that humans could not possess the capacity to create something from nothing that that was really something that uh, was only capable from a divine power but humans could imitate nature and a lot of arts things that we consider art like sculpting and literature and certainly painting were considered humans not being creative but humans sort of embodying and mimicking and trying to understand nature or god although a funny side note is that plato thought that uh, poetry was the only exception to this that all other crafts were basically a human um, desire to sort of uh, channel or understand the world um, however poetry was something that humans could come up with and it was humans only way of sort of participating in this creating something from nothing this way of thinking was also sort of reinforced by the dominance of christianity in the western world the idea that genesis or the story of creation was the only true example of creating something from nothing and that it was through god it really just kind of reinforced this already existing idea of creativity coming from the divine and only ever being able to be channeled through human hands so it's the renaissance where we start to see a deviation from this way of thinking and this is for a multitude of reasons so i think it's important to first say that during the renaissance the focus of creativity being something that purely happens through the divine and is only ever channeled by humans starts to change a little bit and we can see this with the renaissance man the idea that some people possess so much enlightenment that they themselves have a certain capacity for creativity it's pretty new for this time period and it's really the beginning of this move towards humanism which is to say that humans possess some of the attributes that we once attributed solely to a god or a divine source. Of course, this is a slow and gradual shift. The Renaissance is a pretty massive time period. Uh, the start and stop is a little bit debated. It's also different for different regions of Europe. One thing I thought that was really interesting in my research was that uh, Shakespeare would have been considered in his day to have been merely a craftsperson, a wordsmith during his time and not someone who was an artist or certainly a creative genius looking back it's debated whether or not Shakespeare was one person or that that was the title attributed to a bunch of different writers but regardless looking back now we can say that this body of work is incredibly creative and has largely set the stage for western storytelling but during that time period someone who even is prolific as Shakespeare is thought to have been, merely been considered a craftsperson because the idea around who possesses this creative genius was still very much in transit. It was still very much this 
divinity and all other human-based creative endeavors were just mimicking uh, that divinity. So again, like I just think it's interesting to sort of point out that what seems so obvious as a creative person or a creative genius, if you will, during the time because of the limiting nature of the definition of creativity may not have gotten the credit that we perhaps now from our current vantage point thinks that they deserve. I would feel remiss to talk about the Renaissance, obviously all the good things about the Renaissance and the innovation and the breakthroughs and the art and the science and all that good stuff. If I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there's sort of a dark side to the Renaissance. You know, the Renaissance also happened during the age of exploration, which uh, to me feels like a bit of a euphemism for what happened. I think the optimistic twist is that the Renaissance is um, an age of, of trade and art. But as we know, I think a little better in hindsight, that a lot of that trade wasn't all entirely fair and you know some of the acquisitions that the Europeans benefited from and that financially fueled the breakthroughs of the Renaissance came at the exploitation of the land and obviously of the indigenous people of South America, Central America, the Americas, Africa, certain parts of Asia. So it's important to talk about the breakthroughs in creativity but I think one of the points that I want to make about creativity is that it largely reflects the driving economic force at the time and the renaissance were important for all those reasons you know with art and science but also the way money was being traded was different so like the medici for example they formed their empire on banking and it was an industry that largely became so lucrative and so profitable because now people were trading with other parts of the world and again some of the trade was good and fair but some of the trade was incredibly exploitative and harmful to people and natural resources from other parts of the world so the medici were able to become patrons of art and really move the needle away from you know divinity is the only source of inspiration to inspiration could be cultivated between a patron and an artist and could exist and grow inside of a human body in a way that was pretty different to the generations prior so we have this situation where the new emerging merchant class in part changed i think the definition of creativity because now there was another source of power that could say hey it's not just the church it's not just god it's not just the pope or these steadfast religious and government entities which i guess were kind of one and the same at this point but all of a sudden this merchant class was able to say you know we're participating in this art and this innovation and we're sort of financially supporting it so maybe we need to revisit what creativity means Because again, if I can get to another point, creativity and the ownership of it is always sort of the source of power, right? To to be able to claim yourself as creative is sort of claiming ownership of this thing that feels, you know, just one step removed from human life. It's like 1% magical in my opinion. And I'm just going off on opinion here. But I think that the Medici again for example wanting to sort of say hey we're part of this too we're fueling and funding this these innovations and the duomo and all these amazing pieces of art i think it makes sense that the definition once again goes through a change then we have the enlightenment which in a lot of ways is just sort of a continuation and expansion on the renaissance way of thinking this sort of pull towards humanism and this pull away from divinity And we see the philosophs, we've got, you know, your Locke, your Rousseau, your Hobbes, your Nietzsche, all sort of talking about 
what human nature is and what lies within the human and we see conversations around imagination sort of spring up and it's funny because imagination feels like this super ubiquitous like common idea you know children possess imagination but at the time especially with the backdrop being centuries and centuries of humans cannot create they can only mimic and creation is just for god or a higher power to say that everyone sort of possesses this ability to create something from nothing would have been at the time pretty radical. And going back, of course, to the idea that creativity is this huge nebulous idea, none of this follows a clean and tidy linear progression. I think it's important to also bring up the levelers and diggers in England, which is sort of this religious movement. It was kind of a backlash in the wake of the English civil war so think like the late 1600s there was this movement to say that people like the lay people the the artisans the workers possessed this ability to be creative on more of a common level I would say it's sort of as close to like a precursor of like we all sort of own the means to creativity it's not something that's hierarchical in nature you know it's the first time that I was sort of looking through this that in the western world there was this real appeal to I think everyone owns creativity and to be human is to be creative and sort of bestows that onto lay people the levelers and diggers are really interesting because one of the things that they sort of argued was just to even run and maintain a common space and to maintain a community requires creativity and so I think they're interesting to study because we sort of all of a sudden now that we've broken down this really dogmatic view of creativity again going back to the divinity is the only source and we can only interpret it once you sort of break down that really rigid black and white simple way of viewing creativity we see this over and over throughout history is that you end up kind of fighting over the nuance right because we have movements like the levelers and diggers, and I'm sure there's others in history that I just haven't found. But you also see, of course, later with the philosophs, the sort of movement towards creative genius. You know, of course, when you talk about the philosophs and sort of their impact, you have to eventually bring up Darwin and the idea of social Darwinism. And the what I think is sort of the fullest extent of the movement of humanism is of course you get to the idea where not only is creativity and intelligence and genius so human they exist within the human but so much so that these qualities are genetic and can be passed down through a genetic lineage and unfortunately I think that that's kind of where we are now and I think the most recent dominant iteration of the idea of creativity is that there are some people who just possess it it may or may not be genetic but there certainly are some creative geniuses and that is where creativity lies. And getting back to the idea around creativity sort of molds itself around the dominant economic force, we know that the, the next iteration of the philosophers and the Renaissance was the Industrial Revolution. And much like during the Renaissance, how we have the merchant class sort of emerge and create this other class of people who can participate in creative expression that sort of extends even further in the industrial revolution where now we sort of have this consumer class which is something that is pretty new and pretty novel at least to western history 
And we have an emerging class, of course, of the consumers, but also of craftspeople and skilled laborers. And again, this distinction around who is creative and who is just skilled crops up again. You know, we have someone like William Morris in the 1800s who sort of argues that anything done with artistry and sort of the right mindset could be considered art and, you know, the arts and crafts movement, which is kind of an extension of that line of thinking arguably a line of thinking that we're still sort of fighting against, you know, with the idea of uh, specifically feminine dominated crafts being somehow lesser because they're more tied to skill than they are creative genius. Another way that the term creativity exists in this weird, slippery, nebulous state And we see this idea of sort of this genius artist reign supreme in the 20th century with artists like Picasso and Dali. But it's important to know this isn't just a distinction between a Jackson Pollock and other artists who, again, because of this sort of lineage around social Darwinism and the fact that creativity is now sort of this genius that only belongs to whoever at the time occupies the most social capital, of course, as it is still now and as it was then, we see that the great creative genius, the person who really possesses creativity, is largely white men. We not only see the idea of this genius amongst other artists, but we also see sort of this distinction drawn between art and low art, sort of this idea that paintings and ballet are superior to breakdancing and Hollywood movie theaters. And, you know, something like Hollywood is arguably brings in lots of money and it was a huge creative force behind the 20th and 21st centuries. However, because it wasn't sort of considered this higher form of art, it didn't have this sort of cultural lineage to back it up. We see another instance of where this really seemingly arbitrary line is being drawn. And of course, it's influenced by history. It's why I'm wanting to make a podcast with lots of history sort of chalked into it because telling someone who maybe is an alien who lands on planet earth in 1960s america you know it's telling them hey this this industry that's really influential that makes this much money that shapes cultural narratives this isn't considered art but this painting in this gallery in new york that will get seen by a handful of people and get a write-up that's read by a very small part of the population, this is actually art. I think if you explain that to someone without the history and context, they would be very confused. (laughs) And, you know, we see uh, the art world sort of tackle this weird dichotomy. I think one really obvious instance of this is with the French artist Sapec, who put an illustration of a reproduction of the Mona Lisa smoking a pipe, and sort of he's pulling on the fact that there's wide recognition around the Mona Lisa, you know, is the fact that it appeals to the masses what makes something low art, because if that's the case, then the Mona Lisa, which is largely sort of held up as like one of the highest forms of European art, also has a lot of mass appeal. Of course, this is expanded upon by Marcel Duchamp, who is very intrigued by this idea of ready-mades and finding found objects. And, you know, I think his contribution to this idea of who is creative, who is an artist, where does craftsperson end and artist begin, I think is a really important one because, you know, he sort of claims with the work like the fountain, for example, that he can go into a store that and find an object that's very maybe objectively not art, right? 
essentially. It's a reproduction of a cast of a urinal. And he can put it on a white block in a gallery setting and say, this is art because I say it's art. Which to me feels like kind of the the final sort of declaration of creativity is owned by the person so much so that you can completely divorce yourself from the craft from the making and still claim ownership over creativity but back to the mona lisa for a second we also see duchamp take on an alter ego and make these reproductions of the mona lisa he titles it something that is a a bit of a french play on words the name that he titles this piece loosely translates to Mona Lisa has a <laughs> attractive butt. I'll let you look into the details of that. But, you know, he sort of claims ownership, again, of something that's so classically tied to like a creative genius, a renaissance man, and again, just begins to pull questions. And so, you know, he's sort of asking in his own way, in his own time, with his own purpose where does the distinction between high and low art begin and end another obvious example of this would be Andy Warhol's work his infatuation with celebrity and mass production he sort of pulls into analysis the idea of well if the movie industry isn't real art like what what space do these movie stars occupy and does their celebrity qualify or disqualify them from being considered art and you know really starts to pull into question the idea of creativity and I understand Andy Warhol some people either really like him or really don't and I think the thing that I'm the most grateful that he did as an artist working now with similar-ish themes is that I'm really grateful that he took his position as someone who is considered a high artist, right? You know, he fit the mold of what a high artist, a fine artist, a creative genius looked like in his day. And he made, you know, reproductions of suit cans and silk screens of celebrities and really claimed ownership over pop art. And, and you know, I know that can seem like the, that feels really obvious, but I think what it's done for a lot of us is, you know, the art world has had to grapple with the fact that the answer to if an artist who's considered an artist takes on something that's low art, is it considered high art? And we walk away with the answer being, at least in the case of Andy Warhol, yes. And okay, that's all great, but when we talk about the art world and sort of things that happen and statements that are made in the art world, you know, we still sort of are missing a huge swath of the population. The art world is very small and insular and narrow. And in my experience as someone who grew up kind of on the lowest rung of society, it's always felt like something that was very elusive and not meant for me. And, you know, most of us are (laughs) not occupying this high art space. So what are we to do? I mean, largely, I still think that there's a classist element to art that leaves, you know, the conversation around creativity that leaves the masses out. But I would argue that sort of the last twist and turn in this journey of what is creativity, what is art, who occupies it, is kind of the most recent movement, which is the white collar creative. And if you've ever heard the term, you know, I'm a creative and sort of like maybe cringed or winced or asked yourself, well, who is that? Who occupies that space? I think a really good resource for this is a book that was written in 2002 called The Creative Class. Another example of this is in the book Against Creativity by Ollie Mould. If you're interested in this subject matter, I definitely recommend this book. But he sort of talks about Tony Blair in England during the 90s, sort of declaring that the British economy would be brought back through investing in creatives. So specifically how creative people could help 
fuel and create innovation and obviously more robust bottom line by embracing and holding up and sort of redefining this creative class. And getting back to sort of the changing and fluctuating economic structures and how that influences creativity, once again, we see that during the 1990s, the last final chapter of the 20th century, the Western world largely shifts kind of its relationship to colonialism. It becomes a little bit harder to get away with sort of the more egregious aspects of colonialism that you know were done in the past and so I think it's interesting when I read about this that Tony Blair said well we have another resource that we can exhaust that the English people are very creative and by investing we can generate more income and I think it's important to note that it was largely a very successful endeavor it's estimated that by 2016 there was a growth of 84 billion dollars to the UK economy just by the sort of investment in the creative sector and it employed around two million people in the UK and because of the success this sort of model of investing in the creative class was copied around the world and so that's kind of where we are now if I can summarize it myself through my own synthesis we're kind of at this place where creativity lives, of course, in the more traditional sense of these high artists, these sculptors, these conceptual artists, painters, musicians, writers, etc. In the more traditional sense of high art, arguably a very, very small, insular, largely fueled by nepotism type industry. And then we have sort of the creative class, which is largely white collar. And the idea is that the creativity, the, the term around creativity has expanded to sort of encompass entrepreneurship and growing through creativity the bottom line of these companies. You know, as we move into a time where these companies have less and less regulation and they grow and they sort of monopolize, they become really largely the leading and dominant power of today. And because of that, once again, you know, a term where maybe creativity in regards to industry would not have been given the title of creativity, maybe ingenuity, but because we sort of put the stake in the sand and say, no, we have this creative class, it's going to be another resource, the idea around creativity grows again and it changes and it really is tailoring itself to fit the needs of our current sort of capitalist environment. And, you know, I think it's interesting because there's a lot of history that I read that really might say that using the term creativity to sort of describe something where the sole purpose is growing a bottom line, maybe creativity wouldn't fit that. But if there's enough sort of economic pressure, if there's enough consensus because of who's in power at the time, the term creativity will change. And I guess all that to say, this in lies sort of my, my argument to you guys. And it is that creativity ebbs, flows, changes, fluctuates, grows, retracts, regardless of who is creating. Because all the while, I think it's important to note that people are still creating. They're still sewing and creating community and painting in their free time whether or not they sell it or they can claim it on their w2 people are still forming acapella singing groups and doing all kinds of wonderful human creative things because as humans we're just naturally creative even if we live in a cultural climate like today that doesn't really give us a lot of time space and energy to do those things especially if we don't make income off of them nevertheless we keep making art and so obviously this is very much a survey overview of creativity. And I would like to make a note that I also use terms like genius and intellect and art and artistry and imagination and those things 
at different periods of time are one and the same and at other periods of time are very distinct from each other. But I think more than walking away with like a solid opinion or, you know, anything like that, I want you to walk away with maybe just a little bit of background knowledge about creativity. But more importantly, I want you to walk away feeling a little bit curious and maybe slightly critical of who gets ownership of words like art and creativity and imagination and muse and genius and really empower yourself to to maybe claim some of those titles again I don't think it hurts anybody (laughs) to walk around let's say worst case scenario you're you're really somehow not creative I mean I it's it's hard because I don't believe it's true but let's pretend that you you tinker with photography but like okay true through and through you you're not creative you'll never be creative whatever okay I don't think that that hurts anyone I don't think when you claim creative it takes from anyone else like I am very confident in the fact that I'm a creative person and I'm an artist and if my neighbor who you know only ever takes cruddy iPhone pictures and thinks that they're an artist it doesn't take away from what I'm doing at all and I think it's for that reason I feel pretty confident sharing the message that if you want to claim ownership over those ideas you should do that Thank you for listening. I hope you feel encouraged. Let me know what you think or if I got something horribly, terribly wrong in my synopsis. Again, this is really just an overview. If you're curious, please check out the show notes. I link all of my resources. I read a couple of really good books in the lead up to this episode. I think you guys, if you're interested in this, will find those really interesting. And go into your practice. Call yourself an artist if you're hesitant. Share the knowledge. Share the word. And yeah, just wanted to say thank you for being here and happy creating. Hey all, I just wanted to let you know that I'm hosting a painting retreat March 22nd through 27th in the beautiful Texas hill country of Wimberley, Texas. I'll be teaching my still life and landscape techniques as we relax on a hundred acre property situated 45 minutes away from downtown Austin. There are five unique lodging accommodations to choose from plus a drive-in option for local guests. We'll be enjoying chef prepared meals so every single meal of the day is already provided for you and soak in all the inspiration that the beautiful property has to offer. And y'all, if you haven't been down to the Texas Hill Country, it is so stunning. All the locals vacation out there. It's a lot of beauty and nature, and hopefully we're going to be super inspired by that as we learn plein air painting and lots of other great technique. So sign up today by heading over to my website, sari.studio, and clicking the Texas Painting Retreat tab. I hope to see you there. It's going to be a blast. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to all the five-star reviews. Whenever you guys leave these reviews, it really helps growing channels like the Not Sorry Art Podcast. And so this week, I want to say a huge thank you to Tarina S. Art. That's at T-E-R-I-N-A-S-A-R-T. I also wanted to say thank you to Mara's Illustrations. That's M-A-R-A-S-I-L-L-U-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N-S. Thank you guys so much for your lovely reviews. I really appreciate the feedback. If you would like to have your handle read off on next week's episode, make sure to leave a review. Let me know how it's going. I just want to say thank you again and happy creating.